my goodness, the little squares are just, <laughs> it's like flowers coming up in the spring or something. <clears throat> Popping, here we go. So let's have a few minutes of, of sitting together, enjoying the silence and stillness and <clears throat> the focus that comes with such sitting and all the, the chaos that doesn't feel like focus at all as you sit, <laughs> but allowing others to sit uh, with you and, and hold you up and hold you in their heart as they do so.
there's a small verse that we offer <clears throat> at the end of Jukai ceremonies at ordinations. There's a version of it that's at the end of our meal chant when we're in intensives. And it's just three lines. And so I'm going to say the first line, and then you all say it back, and I'll say the second line. So we'll just do that call and response, okay? Very simple. First line. We live like a cloud in an endless sky. Like a lotus in muddy water. One with the pure mind of Buddha. Can I do your best and we'll say it together, okay? Because if we do it two more times, you'll probably get it by that time, okay? <clears throat> we live like a cloud in an endless sky, like a lotus in muddy water, one with the pure mind of Buddha. We live like a cloud in an endless sky, like a lotus in muddy water, one with the pure mind of Buddha. I've always, I always love that little verse because of course in a, in such a, um, a small but powerful poetic way, it speaks to what appears to us as this dual nature that we live in, which is actually one thing. And by the way, the word in um, some of the original languages that's translated as mind, the mind of Buddha is also heart, heart mind, that aren't separate. So it's all these implicit, what appears to be dualities. We live like a cloud in an endless sky, the, the absolute spacious freedom of liberation. And we're rooted in the mud, like a lotus is, that beautiful image of enlightenment. And we all know these images, you've heard them many times. And the kind of cheeky phrase, you know, no mud, no lotus, no um, ordinary life, no blossoming. Um, so we know these things. <clears throat> I, um, <laughs> I had something I was making some notes on that I thought would be uh, possibly useful to, to talk about today. And then I woke up this morning and decided to do something totally different. So I've had an interesting morning because I have to go with what's alive, you know. And of course, we've just been at the cusp of the equinox, as you know. Um, and most of us know this, but um, the, the the spring equinox, which we've just passed, just in the last twenty four hours or so, it marks this first day of what is be spring in the northern hemisphere. I think all of us are in the northern hemisphere. We go around it, but I don't know if we have anybody in the south. And it's it's the day in which the sun's rays shine at the equator. So um, while the Earth sits with its axis not tilted either toward or away from the sun, so it causes 12 hours of sunlight almost everywhere on the Earth. That's we kind of know this. But I thought the image was really profound. It stayed with me. Because for a brief moment, it's really a kind of like a moment, it seems longer, but the Earth neither turns away nor turns toward even as it's turning, it's not tilted. It's, it's sort of upright. In the midst of this dynamic energy of the universe, it, this is our, this is our zazen, this is our sitting. And it's way beyond what we as small humans can conceive of the, um, the dynamic energy of the universe, we can have an image of the earth, because we have our globes and we have, we have, uh, beautiful uh, telescopes and also the kinds of um, uh, imagery that we see through animation and 
but this brief period of neither leaning into or away from something, this is essential in our in our practice, being upright in the dynamic energy of the universe beyond what we can conceive of really, but we're in the midst of, think of the, the earth now, it, it's constant movement and change. Every particle of matter, every unique planet and moon, every immense star and entire galaxies, all moving in a mutual dance of responsive energies without any gap. You know, in our teachings, we speak about impermanence, things changing, that the entire universe is nothing but change. It's this dance that we're in the midst of. And then there are the teachings that go along with impermanence on interbeing, mutual causality, interdependence. That's the music that moves the dance of the whole universe and every little simple thing in it, every cloud in the sky, every lotus in the mud. And with these two, we, we also hear the teachings of um, emptiness or no self, which is just the way we understand these things, impermanence and interdependence, which basically amount to awe in the face of it all. But we're in our body, we're still that lotus in the, we're, we're, it's the embodied inconceivable, which we are actually living, whether we appreciate it or not, is still the, the case. There's a, there's a small phrase from a poem from Rilke in which he says something about the, the daily struggles we have and yet this inconceivable, he says, and yet though we strain against the deadening grip of daily necessity, <laughs> we strain against the deadening grip of daily necessity, I sense there is this mystery. All life is being lived. Who's living it then? Is it the things themselves or something waiting inside them like an unplayed melody in a flute? It's such an interesting image. We are living this inconceivable life, which looks ordinary day to day, but when we engage our practices, we open. Uh, to a perspective which shifts the daily necessity into something uh, a little different. And our practice is you know, to, to wake up to this fact, this reality, this mystery, not figure it out or explain it, but to live it together. But then from our small human perspective, as we live as and with this whole mystery on this planet in relationship to our generously warming star we call the sun, humans have noticed over the centuries that there is a moment of alignment in which the energy from that star, the sun, shines onto the equator, the very center of our living globe, while the earth sits upright with its axis, I say upright, tilted neither toward or away from the sun, and there's 12 hours of sunlight pretty much everywhere. And of course, we know the Buddha taught the middle way. And he taught the middle way after hearing, in the history anyway, it talks about him hearing uh, music from a lute that was on a barge going down the river. And he could hear this music and he realized, oh, if the strings are too loose, there's no music, if they're too tight, they break. It's the middle way which allows this music, the music of the spheres to, to be heard and to be played. 
So this middle, middle way, neither leaning this way or that, there's something about that. Um, and of course, we can continue the metaphor. It's kind of interesting to think of there, uh, through the seasons, the Earth does tilt on its axis as it's rotating. And we do too. We do tilt far away sometimes and toward sometimes. And there are days when we seem to have a lot of darkness and others we seem to have a lot of light. And so that, that imagery uh, continues. But I, I was looking up the uh, etymology of the word equinox because I was curious about it. And actually, it comes from the root equal night. It doesn't come from a root that is equal day or light. Equal night. And in the in the Buddhist teachings, and certainly in the way I understand it from the Zen tradition and some of our ancestors, the dark or night isn't thought of as um, something obscured or where we're lost. In, in the, the, the Zen tradition, the dark is thought of as the absolute. Because in the dark, all the distinctions and divisions, uh, you, you can't, everything's one thing. It's in the light when all the divisions come and you can see distinctions. And there's a, uh, one of our key uh, pieces in our liturgy, uh, the Sandokai, which is translated as, you know, the merging of difference and unity or uh, sameness and difference. There's a line that says the spiritual source shines clear in the light. The branching streams flow on in the dark. The source shines clear in the light. Branching streams flow on in the dark. So darkness is taken as the absolute in which the streams of Dharma, the streams of awakening flow in the dark. And the darkness where divisions and details disappear. And everything seems to be one. Later in that same poem, it says, in light, there is darkness. But don't take it as darkness. In dark, there's light, but don't take, don't see it as light. Think of the yin-yang symbol. You know, one side is dark, but there's that little white dot. There's a Taoist symbology in here, obviously. And as we wake up, all the teachers, ancestors, sages have reminded us not to grasp at either side. Don't grasp at just my life here and try to sort it all out, but also don't grasp at emptiness and whatever you want to call it, wakefulness of the absolute, try to get away from life. You can't plant seeds in the sky, they can't grow, <laughs> but you don't want to get stuck in the mud either. And you want to be able to, to lift yourself and others up and realize they're not in opposition, the relative and the absolute. Yet they appear that way in our everyday eye. And now in the end, just now and then, and a couple times a year, the earth shows us this merging of difference and unity, this, this balance of light and dark for a moment, because we call them that. But really, it's just the dynamic dance of the universe, and, and, um, and we notice these things. You can think of the ways in which you call and name and feel things as, as dark, which you might think of as, as heavy or difficult. And yet in that darkness, if you don't take it as darkness, if you don't see it as darkness, like in the Sandakai, Maybe there's something else there. We might grasp for the light, but the light sometimes obscures other things or is blinding or, and when you grasp it, we miss what's flowing more deeply. All these images you're, you're aware of and the equinox, I think reminds us of this equal night. Where throughout the earth, there's an 
equal taste of the absolute the depths. And with this everyday thing in our on our earth, and the small perspectives that we have as humans, it's I think beautifully expressed. Um, and of course, I'm going to go to poetry because that's that's the way some of this stuff moves most easily. And who better to speak to uh, the earthly uh, challenges and delights but Mary Oliver and this uh, brief poem. So I'll read it and then I'll go back and make a couple of comments. It's not very long. Uh, the title is a, a Settlement. A Settlement. And she starts, look at spring. <laughs> and here we are on the first days. Look at spring. And last year's loose dust has turned into this soft willingness. The windflowers have come up trembling. Slowly, the brackens are uplifting their curvaceous and pale bodies. The thrushes have come home, none less than filled with mystery, sorrow, happiness, music, ambition. And I'm walking out into all of this with nowhere to go and no task undertaken, but to turn the pages of this beautiful world over and over in the world of my mind. Therefore, dark past, I'm about to do it. I'm about to forgive you for everything. You know, in true Mary Oliver style, she grounds us in the earth and then turns on us at the end <laughs> to a, another place which opens our hearts and our, our minds. Look at spring, she says, and here we are. And last year's loose dust has turned into this soft willingness, this soft willingness. If there's anything that I think is important to enter practice, to sit with each other in inquiry, to walk with each other, spiritual friends, to just be able to live together over the years, as so many of us have done together requires a soft willingness. Certainly there's times in which um, a fierceness is called for, um, but ultimately in uh, her title, A Settlement, as we settle, there's this soft willingness. To do what? Well, she speaks of the flowers coming up trembling, and don't we? come up through our lives. However robust we might look, there's a trembling underneath. And the bracken, she said, are lifting their curl, curvaceous and pale bodies. And we feel this tenderness, this um, vulnerability of what it means to be alive. Knowing as we're born, we're headed towards death. And that's all one thing, that's all one life. And then she mentions the return of the thrush, but all of us uh, take refuge, we return, we come back, we find out where we are over and over and over again, full of, she says, mystery, sorrow, happiness, music, ambition, all these qualities of not, not knowing. What is this over and over? We ask the question, what the heck is this, this life? And then we meet a sorrow and we think, oh, it's, it's sorrowful. Or we meet a happiness, it's joyful. We have this distinction of light and dark again. But if we can listen to the music, she says, and notice our ambition, notice where we're, what we're called to and what we're dragged into, what we long for, what's... And then she shifts and says, uh, and I'm walking out into all of this. That's a great line to think as you make that step and bow into the Zendo. And now I'm walking out into all of this. 
with nowhere to go and no task undertaken, we come into the meditation hall or to our, the corner of our bedroom or wherever we sit, or the field where we take our walking meditation next to us. I'm walking out into all of this with nowhere to go and no task undertaken, but to turn the pages of this beautiful world over and over with each breath, each step, each long and tedious moment of sitting, each bright and wonderful and generous moment of sitting, depending on how it feels at the moment. I'm turning the pages of the beautiful world over and over in the world of my mind. And I would say also of my heart. Because through our mind and our heart, we take the world in and we respond back to the world. That's our life. And so she speaks of spring and renewal, of everything that it brings, the relative, that's the mud and the lotus. And then she speaks of walking out with no, nothing to do, nowhere to go, but to turn the page. This is the, the absolute, the great mystery that's embodied, the embodied inconceivable. And in that moment of ordinary human life, within this great mystery, she does something incredibly human and ordinary. She says, therefore, dark past, all my conditioning, my karma, all the things that I've carried around, the burdens of my life, I'm about to do it. I'm about to forgive you for everything. There are those mysterious kind of words in Dogen's teachings where he says, body and mind of themselves drop away. Just like, what is that? I think it has to do with setting down the burden of our past. And one moment, at one time in the year, it appears in our tiny little mind that the earth stands still and it's just this equal, it's upright. But that's just an, an, an image. There's not too much dark and there's not too much light. It's just our life. We speak about, you know, self and no self. What am I going to forgive? What am I going to let go of? What do I set aside when I take a posture of Zazen? We're not going to get a better past. We will, or you have the opportunity to have a new relationship with it all. The traumas don't suddenly disappear, but maybe we don't live them out the same way. Our addictions and things that have plagued us, maybe we don't continue to practice in the same way. We have a soft willingness turning the pages of our beautiful life, your life, full of mystery and sorrow, happiness, music and ambition. And that requires um, not, not to be without a self, but a self that is unburdened. not caught in the self-centered dream, a self that's not caught. And so that's, those are some of the musings that came to me as I thought about the, the equinox, about this moment of where the earth and the universe shows us what we think of as the middle way. And then there's the dynamic all around it. The, the middle way isn't the, let's see, what do we call it in the, the church of my childhood, the, the straight and narrow. It's a wide, wide, wide space. There is the center of gravity of home, of uprightness, around which we orbit and move and walk through our lives together with each other. 
So on this um, essentially first day of, or second day of spring, depending on where you are, and this moment of movement into more light after an equal darkness, what is moving in you right now? What music do you hear? What dance are you dancing? How are you walking through your uh, through your life? Please raise your hand if you'd like to to meet around these things. Thank you for listening. Maru. Hola. Hola. <laughs> Hola, everybody. Uh, this morning, I um, as I was coming into the studio. I walked by these barrels that I have where I planted daffodils and tulips. Ah. And yeah, and they are under the earth, right? And they haven't come up yet. Not there, not there yet, not out. And so I'm uh, looking at them and I noticed some of them had these. Um, transparent layer of eyes on top mm. and I felt oh I wonder what's going on there you know and and then uh, when we were sitting I had this almost like it felt not that my mind went to the daffodils but that the daffodils came to me you know mm. the of all these daffodils came to me as being there um, so um, centered and um, like swallowing, swallowing and open, starting to, to go up, you know, and I felt this presence so strongly and so like everywhere around mm -hmm. me and as if I was a daffodil myself. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, such a tangible and um, elemental experience. Yes, yes, yes. Greatness. Mm -hmm. This yeah. uplift. Yeah, and and being in the dark. Um, mm -hmm. And what came was this almost like a subtle um, proposition <laughs> as if um, this soft willingness really, what really spoke to this. What if the only thing that I need to be occupied with is to allow everything to sprout around me, including myself. Yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, I love the image of without the darkness and the settlement, the bud doesn't begin. Without the light, it's not drawn up. And I, th I think in my own garden, sometimes I feel the self-centered dream looks like, I wish they would hurry. I wish they would go faster. I wish they would do it a certain way. But the soft willingness, which allows things to grow at their own pace is teaching me. So they're coming to me. I'm not in charge of them. It feels also almost like uh, this a blind trust of life mm -hmm. under under the earth under the soil mm -hmm. 
Absolutely, all the elements come together, things respond. And in some ways, I think that's our practice. We, we try to bring elements together, which are wholesome, and we naturally respond. You have to force the blossom, yeah. naturally respond. We were talking about aging yesterday. I was, I was speaking with Brahman over at the Hui, you know, of course, and <clears throat> we were talking about how the image of the flower comes up and it rose so beautiful, you know, and it just bring it and then it begins to wrinkle <laughs> and the petals begin to fall apart. We're talking about the whole cycle of aging, you know, and where we are. But that's one is not better than the other. It's the way it goes. Of course, we have preferences because we cling to life natural as human animals. But thank you for your teaching, Maru. It's very beautiful. And I guess from your home, this would not be the first day of spring. It'd be the first day of fall, huh? Mm -hmm. In Buenos Aires. Yeah. <laughs> I forget about that. Yeah. I guess that's why I like macadamia trees because they bloom and give fruit at the same time. It's all happening. All happening, yeah. <laughs> Tree, right? Right. Like us, living and dying at the same moment. We have Cassie. Hey, Cass. Hey. Um, <clears throat> I feel intimidated and a little tender, and I'm noticing the connection from where you're speaking from is really, really quite nice. And I guess what, you know, prompted me to raise my hand is that, you know, I, I think I don't have ideas about something until you flip it on me. And then I'm just like, huh. I totally had a presumption there. That's my job. <laughs> um, but the straight and narrow being a very, very wide path just was just like, oh, that fits. That's so, that it just seems so true and um the part yeah. about go ahead oh i was gonna say i'm just saying you i know you grew up with that same image hmm. um yeah it's like oh yeah there is the stripe in the middle of the highway but you need the whole highway <laughs> yeah um so um i had two other things that i can't Pull up right now. Take a moment and just have a few breaths. If they come, they come. If they don't, they don't. That's not important. Straight and narrow. I flipped it on you. Yeah, and I, there's something about a need to fill the space that isn't really important. Um, but there's, um, there's an urge. Yeah. If I don't fill the space, then I would say I'm not doing anything, that I'm not participating, I'm not engaging. And yet, I'm also having the idea that that's not true. That if I don't fill the space, I actually am engaging more. Glad you said it. <laughs> I mean, that's, not, that's not always the case, but sometimes it is, isn't it? Yeah. The times when you and I are together, and, or any of us, and there's some spacious, quiet intimacy. Yeah. That's not a waste, is it? No, it's like the most fulfilling part for me. Uh -huh. um, and this thing about, you know, having ideas and then, you know, oh, if you're thinking, then you're off. Well, you know, thinking is going to continue. It's believing you're thinking. Okay. Because you're not going to be able to stop your mind, probably. There are times when it's less active, sure. But right. minds, minds think. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with thinking. It's that when we believe the virtual reality uh -huh. as we create it, 
uh, and that idea of being, you know, being ready to forgive the past yeah. or whatever that actually, yeah, that, that was because, um, if I hadn't had my past, I wouldn't be here. That's right. If I hadn't had my past, it wouldn't mean to me what this means to me. It's the clinging that makes the problem. That's the self-centered dream. And you remember the John O'Donohue blessing where it starts, may all those unforgiven be, be released. Yeah. Just let go of. So you don't cling to it. It's going to be there. But we cling and then make something out of it and then live the life that we've made out of it instead of the life we're actually living it. Yeah. You don't have to get rid of yourself. What you let go of is the dream. That's what falls away, not the self. We need a self to be here and do things. But the self-centered dream. And unfortunately, as you know well, sometimes religions are a substitute dream. Yeah. Let's have this dream, not that dream. Instead of free of dream, people are frightened of not having the dream. That's why you want to fill the space. Because it takes not a, a soft willingness to be kind to yourself, but it takes a lot of courage to not live the dream. Yeah. Yeah. Because it offers so much juice. Absolutely. And then I think that juice is the aliveness, and it's right. not. You're going to live a life with no drama that's boring right there was some analogy that you gave like a long time ago about a dry sponge and where a little bit of water comes into just one spot of it or just putting and how intense the sponge might feel about that little bit of water or just putting the sponge in a you know in in a pool um and it all soaks up from everywhere so that 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 juice, I often think, is when it's only coming from that one spot instead of the wide path that uh, you were talking about just a minute ago. Yeah. And the way we are... Whatever reason, that comes back well, to me a bunch. Continuing that, well, the way we are penetrated by our steadiness of practice, even when it's not dramatic, especially when it's not dramatic. And I think even in practice discussion group last week, I might have used an image that came from Suzuki Roshi, where he talked about in San Francisco in the early morning, you know, it was often foggy, walking from his residence to the temple in his robes. And when he got to the temple, he went inside and realized he was wet. But he was never went through the rain or anything. It's like he slowly penetrated by the walking through. And this is how we are in our practice. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. See you soon. Okay. No, oh, he's Mala. Good afternoon. Hi. You briefly mentioned, well, you were talking a little bit about music, the Buddha and the, the uh, lute on the barge, beautiful. But before that, you mentioned something, I wasn't sure if it was a reference to Renier Marie Rilke or not, but it was about an unplayed melody in a flute. Yeah, that was from the Rilke poem. Okay, okay. And my curiosity is whether the unplayed melody is being withheld from the world or is it enriching the flute or does it matter? It could be either way. The imagery in the larger poem that Rilke has talked about, um, the, the sort of title of that poem is No One Lives Their Life. It's about what's being withheld. But in this part of the poem, he's talking about there is a life that's actually moving. You can call it stepping forward and living your life or withholding your life and but you both are living that's the way you're living life is always there but we have these images like where's the music is like is it in the flute or is it in the playing of the where's the music 
It's like waiting to be played. Life is waiting for you to engage it fully. So the music that comes out is Marla-ness, you know, or Flint-ness or whatever. So there's no real obligation to play the melody or... Well, using the imagery that we're using right now, obligation, um, you have been given a life. And so it's probably a good idea to go ahead and live it. And so obligation, there's kind of an interesting responsibility because of a gift, because it's immense. It seems kind of lovely to think about holding an unplayed melody too. Just And there are moments we do that, isn't it? It's very uh, private and sweet and dear. Uh, and other times we burst out into the expression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's usually me. As you were known to do, right? But also... <laughs> But also, you're exploring this other side, too, of um, uh, silence and simplicity and solitude. Uh, what it's like to, um, I mean, you see um, a beautiful grand piano sitting there, not making any sound, but there's something about it. You know all that's in there. Yeah. But to play it, you have to sit down and engage it. Yeah. But there are times when it's just, there and other times when it's being played and that's, that's your life back and forth we think of them as dualistic but yeah but there's something moving in you about this well it's the it is those words unplayed melody and a flip those let beautiful, be beautiful. Yeah, hmm? let that be a con yes yeah thank you Laurie. <laughs> she says with great joy. <laughs> Laurie. Hi there. Hi there. So <clears throat> I'm actually kind of um, coming forward to report, report things from the hundredth year birthday that we celebrated for my mother. It happened. It happened. And um, say what? She reached 100 years. She reached 100. Mm. So um, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, but I had I had thought um, that I would come forward and say something, you know, at the event. So I was kind of like the master of ceremonies at the, at the beginning. And I um, and I never would have done that if I hadn't come to know you. <laughs> I'd have been in the corner the whole time. Is that a good news or bad news? <laughs> that's good news. Okay. Coming forward. Coming forward. Um, and that's what it was about, was coming forward. And and um, so I was grateful for that opportunity. It was kind of scary. In my, in my family, it wasn't often a safe place to come forward. So, um, So I knew I was pushing the edge there but i thought nah you know i think i can do this so and so i did and and um afterward my mother said who was that person <laughs> uh, did she, uh, but that, she didn't mean metaphorically she what actually didn't know it was you she knew it was me but she just meant she didn't recognize me as oh, she said it. you're so self-assured which um, yeah, who is that? She hadn't seen that. Who is it? Yeah. So um, it's great that one time in her life she saw that. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how I felt. So that was um, really frightening for me and to do it, and then also gratifying in a way. Mm -hmm. But she had a lot of how much time, and I know. I don't have much time. I should stop. Maybe that's enough for now. Um, thank you for telling us that. And thank you for um, letting us know her reflection that she can. Because I've seen that in you too, as you've taken uh, this sometimes shaky but important seat as a teacher. I've said one of the main things that I've noticed is you come forward. It's like, wow, who's that? Mm -hmm. Because I know it's in you or we wouldn't have invited you to take that seat. Mm -hmm. 
and now you're letting yourself uh, grow into it. Yeah, little by little. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. What was Bridget gone? We had Bridget. Uh oh, did she go? Sure. <clears throat> There she is. There she is. <laughs> I'll best check, but she hasn't changed her mind because I've just brought her forward. <laughs> well, this will be the lightning round. Um, so much has touched me by each person who's come forward. But you made reference to a poem that I don't know how to spell the name of or the, the source, but you talked about the Sunder Kai. What is that? Or how do you spell it? Yeah, uh, well, you don't really need the Japanese name if you don't want, but it's S A N D. Okay. okay, AI, Sandokai. Um, and it's a, it's a classical poem from one of our Zen ancestors that we often chant in the liturgy and morning service for longer services. It's um, uh, back in the old days uh, when, you know, Peg and I were practicing in more traditional temples, we chanted in Japanese. And it's a little kind of a complicated one, but the English, um, the English versions, uh, the merging of difference and unity is one of the English translations uh, of the title uh, can be. So it's this understanding of what we see as difference actually is one thing. Mm -hmm. And if you look in the Apamata chant book, you can find both the English and the Japanese. Okay. And for anyone who doesn't know, if you go to the Apamata website and Peg just put it in chat, you can see it too. Um, uh, you can download the PDF of the whole chant book from the Apamata website. Right. But it's it's in there. And so it's a classic piece. Okay. Well, I didn't recognize the Japanese name, but I do have the chant book and I'll look into it. It just yeah. seemed to capsulize the, when you made reference to it, this this feeling of, of uh, push and pull that I'm feeling with regard to my son um, who isn't in touch right now and, and how I can hold both these things at the same time. And yes. I grateful because the practice here is allowing me to to view this in a different way and not stay fixed on my my self-centered dream of feeling like a failure as a parent that I'm I'm mm -hmm. still growing and emerging so it'll it'll have its way of growing both of us and thank you that the the analogy of the spring is so great and um my uncle's birthday is on today and I always think of him because I didn't know him very well but um, when I learned that he was dying and I was out in California for a college interview, I, I, my mom said, perhaps I could go visit him. And, and I did. And he was in his hospital bed. He, he had chosen to die at the hospital and he had brought a painting from home. And I'm an artist in a way. And so I, we talked about his painting and I just felt moved as a, you know, I was obviously a, an older teenager. But I just said, you know, Uncle Tom, can I lay down on your bed for a minute? And he said, oh, sure, honey. And we'd never been that close. I mean, he just came to visit sometimes, but we had calls from him. And it just to be able to say goodbye to someone that way, even at that young age, I think it was a comfort to both of us. Mm -hmm. And okay. I just am grateful. Thank you. That still moves you now. It does. And it's so important for us to both hold on and let go at the same time. Yes, you're giving us a beautiful example of the practical way these things move through us. Absolutely. Oh, oh thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bridget. <laughs> and so let's uh, intone the four practice principles, which remind us of exactly what each person has spoken of so beautifully today, and which uh, Bridget was reminding us of here, here towards the end. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment. Life as it is, 
the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Welcome to spring. Thank you so much, Flint. Thank you. And thank you all so much for being here. And if you'd like to offer Dana to Flint, and we have other teachers here this evening, Peg and Joel and Laurie, then please do go to the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. And there you'll feel, find lots of opportunities. Just write, if it's not clear, just write in the box who you'd who or what you'd like your contribution to uh, go towards. But thank you all so much for being here more than anything else. It's just wonderful to see you all. And, uh, and if you'd like to continue with me, um, and others for a further 30 minutes, please do pop yourself into gallery view and we'll continue for a further 30 minutes. Thank you all so much. Thank you.